How we eat is just as important as what we eat. When have you stopped to apply your five senses to this thing called lunch that's arrived in front of you? Allowing you to eat slower and actually absorb more nutrients. If we're anxious and agitated as we are in fight or flight, our food choices tend to be a bit sketchy. It's super simple, not as simple in practice, but only eat when you're really hungry and stop when you're full. Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. If you are a regular listener to this podcast, well, you know that I've been diving deep into the great mystery of what should we eat to achieve optimal health. While that remains a critical question to answer for ourselves, it's also important that we examine not only what we eat, but how we eat. Uh, over the course of this masterclass, we'll be exploring mindful eating. What is it? Why is it important to eat mindfully? And how do you actually go about doing it? To answer these questions, we've distilled the most essential lessons on mindful eating from our vast library of commune courses. If at any point you want to go deeper with one of these qualified teachers, well, you can do so by going to onecommune.com courses to find their individual programs or go to onecommune.com trial to join commune membership free for 14 days and access our entire library of more than 100 courses on personal growth, health, nutrition, yoga, meditation, and social impact. Over the course of this masterclass, we'll be hearing from Dr. Mary Pardee about how digestion works, Kim Snyder on food combining and the principle of eating light to heavy, Dr. James Gordon regarding the trauma healing diet, Dr. Siva Mohan on an Ayurvedic approach, Dr. Pedram Shojai on bringing conscious awareness to eating, and Jason Robel on food journaling. I will start with Dr. Mary Pardee, who will go over the basics of how digestion works. I find this so incredibly helpful. Turning our attention to the miraculous details of how our bodies turn food into fuel empowers us to make healthier choices. And once you actually know what's happening on a molecular level and make it a point to pay attention, well, then it's really hard to continue unhealthy habits. So let's get into it. Here's part one with Dr. Mary Pardee, who breaks down how digestion works. Today, we're diving straight into how the digestive system works so we have a better understanding of how things can go wrong. Let's start from the top, literally with your mouth. Your GI tract is a long tube that is actually on the outside of your body. Now, you might be thinking, last time I checked, my guts were in the inside. And I know it sounds weird, but you can think of yourself as a paper towel roll. So you have that cardboard interior of the paper towel roll, and that's actually on the outside, right? The GI tract is exactly the same. It's a continuous tube that runs from your mouth all the way down to your anus, and it's technically on the outside of your body. 
This is important because our GI tract is actually a surface that communicates with the outside world. This is also another reason why we need to protect our intestinal lining. It's the barrier between our insides and the outsides, similar to your skin. The easiest way to learn about how the GI tract works is to follow a meal from the mouth, well, to the toilet. So imagine you're eating a healthy whole foods dinner like broccoli, grass-fed beef, or some sweet potato and olive oil. Chewing your food is step number one. This is really the only mechanical digestion that we get through the entire digestive process. Now, mechanical digestion is just what it means. It is the physical breakdown from the force of your teeth to the food. The rest of digestion is all chemical. This is also why chewing well is so important. After you chew your food, it passes from the mouth to the esophagus and then into the stomach. The stomach is the storage vessel. It controls the rate that the contents can be moved into the small intestine. The stomach is also where hydrochloric acid and pepsin are released. Your stomach's pH is about a 1.5. Now, to put this into perspective, the pH of water is around a 7, our blood's pH is 7.4, and battery acid has a pH of around 0. So 1.5 is very, very acidic. It's actually more acidic than lemon juice. Pepsin is a digestive enzyme, and both pepsin and hydrochloric acid produced in the stomach help to break down the proteins, like that chicken that we ate. Now, the acidic environment of the stomach is also crucial for killing bacteria and breaking apart other toxins that might have gotten in through our food. It's a defense mechanism. And this is why not having enough stomach acid can be detrimental. We need our stomach acid, it's essential. We need the low pH of the stomach to break down our food and to kill potential pathogens to prevent the overgrowth of bacteria. Now, once food is all mixed up by the stomach and it's acidic enough, it slowly enters the small intestines. The small intestines is called small because of its diameter, not because of its length. The small intestine is actually about 15 to 20 feet long. It needs to be this long because this is where the majority of absorption of our nutrients is going to occur. Vitamins and macronutrients like carbohydrates, protein, and fats are all absorbed in the small intestine. In order to do this, the small intestine has tiny finger-like projections called villi. And on these villi are even smaller projections called microvilli. They're like a brush border, little projections like fingers in your intestines. These little outpouches increase the surface area of the intestines so that we can absorb all the nutrients that we need. These folds also make the small intestines 30 times the surface area that it would be without them. Now, 30 times the surface area is really, really large. If you flattened out the entire small intestines, it would be about the size of a tennis court. Ideally, these finger-like projections are nice and long and healthy so that we can absorb all the nutrients that we need. When the food mixture enters the small intestines, it's greeted by digestive enzymes that are released from the pancreas, as well as bile from the gallbladder and the liver, and these contents are neutralized, meaning they're made less acidic. Enzymes made by the pancreas are responsible for breaking down your chicken or your protein into amino acids. They break down the sweet potato or carbohydrates into simple sugars like glucose, and then they break down fats like olive oil into short-chain fatty acids. Pancreatic enzymes are so important. They do a large majority of the digestive process. So what causes the release of these enzymes in the first place? Acidic material in the small intestines is actually the trigger for the pancreatic enzymes to be released. This is why having a low pH and plenty of acid in the stomach is so important. 
This is also why the long-term use of medications that block the stomach acid can be really problematic for your gut health because you're not gonna get those pancreatic enzymes to be released. The other thing that we use to digest our food comes from the gallbladder. The bile that's released from the liver is stored in the gallbladder until it's needed. Bile is responsible for acting like a detergent, like a soap, to further emulsify or break down your fats so that they can be absorbed. If bile is released ineffectively, then you may experience diarrhea because those fats aren't getting absorbed, so it speeds your gut up. And when you have too much fat in your stool, well, let's just say that accidents can happen. This is why some people who have had their gallbladder removed experience digestive issues. I wanna pause and take a closer look at something. If you haven't noticed, it's really important that hydrochloric acid, pepsin, and pancreatic enzymes are released to help us break down our food so we can absorb them. But how does your body know to release these compounds? Acetylcholine is a key neurotransmitter. It's the key neurotransmitter in the parasympathetic nervous system. This is your rest and digest nervous system. It means that if we're not in a relaxed state when we eat our food, then the proper amount of digestive enzymes, hydrochloric acid, aren't gonna be released and your food might not be broken down efficiently, leading to symptoms like indigestion, reflux, diarrhea, constipation, bloating, any of these. Well, you're gonna hear me say this over and over, but a lot of GI conditions are likely caused by a disruption of the nervous system, like low parasympathetic tone, causing us to be in a constant state of fight or flight. All right, but back to digestion 101. All of the food, after it passes through the 15 feet of small intestines, it's going to get to the entrance of the large intestines, or the colon. This is a much larger diameter tube that's about five feet long. And in this tube, we absorb the rest of the water to make our solid stool or to make your poop. This seems simple, but this is where we can have some issues. You see, the rate of motility of the intestines will determine the consistency of your poop and poop consistency matters. We'll talk about that soon. If things are moving too quickly, then not enough water will be absorbed and you're gonna end up with loose stools or diarrhea. And on the flip side, if things are moving too slowly, then too much water is absorbed and you're gonna be left with those little rabbit pellets or constipation. The rest of the nutrients are also absorbed in the colon, but most of that already happened in the small intestines. The colon serves another big purpose though. It's the main storage container for your gut microbiome. But back to our chicken, broccoli, and sweet potato. These foods are now looking a lot like poop and they will finally make their way across the colon, through the rectum and into the toilet. So the mission is accomplished. Digestion is just miraculous. After food leaves your mouth, digestion no longer happens through mechanical force, but rather through very specific chemical processes starting in the stomach where acids like pepsin and hydrochloric acid take what you've chewed and break it down further. Stomach acids are important as they degrade toxins and kill any potentially dangerous pathogens before the food moves along to the small intestine where digestive enzymes secreted by the pancreas and the gallbladder further break down fats, carbohydrates, and proteins. It's here where most of the nutrients from our food are absorbed. 
From there, food enters the large intestine where the remaining nutrients are absorbed. But more importantly, this is where our food interacts with the majority of our intestinal microbiome, which is a topic that we cover in other courses. But suffice it to say, microbiome health impacts overall health, including mood, sleep, and inflammation levels. Dr. Pardee mentions that we don't do a good job of releasing hydrochloric acid or important enzymes when we're in a state of fight or flight. In other words, we can inhibit our digestion if we're eating while stressed out. The chronic stress so many of us experience because of high-pressure jobs, troubled relationships, lack of community, loneliness, big and little t trauma, not to mention the stress that comes with paying attention to current events, all of this can send you into a fight or flight response, spiking cortisol levels and inhibiting the release of essential digestive enzymes, in turn limiting the nutrients we absorb from our food. It works both ways. How we feel affects how we digest and how we digest affects how we feel. The process of turning food into fuel is so elegantly complex in its design, the more mindful we are of how it works, the more that we can make great decisions that support it, like really chewing our food and calming ourselves before meals. These small changes can have such a huge impact. Now that we understand the basic mechanisms of digestion and why our overall psychophysiological state affects how well we process and absorb the nutrients from food, we'll now turn our attention to mindful eating itself. We'll hear from a variety of mindful eating advocates who offer specific techniques and how we start to incorporate mindful eating into our lives. Let's start again with Dr. Mary Pardee. Most of us are eating a majority of our meals on the go, and we're still wondering why we have reflux, constipation, and bloating. A lot has changed during the evolution of our species. Humans have been around for over 200,000 years, but fast food and prepared foods have only been around for about 100. So 99.9999% of human existence, we have gathered and prepared our own food. This means that we had spent a lot of time with our food before we even consumed it. This is important because the digestive process actually starts well before the food hits our mouth. The cephalic phase of digestion begins at the first sight and smell of food. Cephalic literally means head in Latin. So this is the digestive process that starts in the head with your eyes, your ears, your nose, and your mouth. These inputs to the brain trigger the vagus nerve to be activated and our stomach to start producing more stomach acid and digestive enzymes. The cephalic phase of digestion is responsible for 30% of the stomach acid that's produced and 20% of the pancreatic enzymes that are secreted that help you break down your food. Remember back to Gut Health 101, the only chemical aids that we have in the digestive process are hydrochloric acid, pancreatic enzymes, and bile. So if we cut off the production of these, then we're gonna feel the effects. Skipping that preparation and the smelling of food is one of the big contributing factors to indigestion, like heartburn, reflux, or bloating. 
We're so lucky that we have abundant and easy access to food, but we need to make sure we're incorporating mindful eating practices so we're less likely to get digestive issues in the first place. Mindful eating is prioritizing the cephalic phase. It's our practice of looking at, smelling, and really taking in your food, being present with it before you start to eat. If you're not salivating before you start to eat, then you shouldn't be eating. You also need to make sure that once you do start to eat, you're chewing your food. How many times should you chew your food? I literally have no idea, but the rule of thumb is that your food should resemble baby food before it's swallowed. This means a lot of chewing has to happen. The process of chewing releases serotonin in our brains. And if we don't chew, we not only don't get bathed in this calming and happy neurotransmitter, but we also leave our stomach with big chunks of food to attempt to digest. Chewing is our only form of mechanical digestion, remember that. After our mouth, we only have the enzymes and acids left to break down our food, which isn't enough to deal with large chunks. This is why I said before, if you've got big chunks of food in your poop, then it's more likely due to the fact that you aren't chewing than anything else. Now, is there science behind this mindful eating thing? Or is it just another yogi trend? Well, it turns out there's a quite a bit of science. So one study found that people who do other things and perform other tasks while they're eating, like say watching TV or working, they weigh 18% more than the people who focus on eating itself. This is 27 extra pounds on a 150 pound person. That's a lot of weight for just shifting your thoughts and your attention to the present moment. What if I told you that you could lose 27 pounds by doing less? This is everybody's dream, right? Mindful eating is looking a little bit more interesting, right? Those who practice mindful eating are way less likely to overeat. When we slow down and practice mindfulness, we'll start to notice the more subtle cues of satiety, meaning you feel satiated. That way we can stop eating when we're 80% full to prevent indigestion and bloating. Eating on autopilot is not a great idea, especially if you have GI issues that you're trying to fix. Instead, we need to shift our attention to our food and be fully present for the digestive process to work like it's supposed to. Just the other day, I was driving to the clinic and at the stoplight, the guy next to me, he had a Tupperware container and was eating out of it like a full four course meal. He was doing breakfast on the run while driving. With LA traffic, do you think he was getting the benefits of mindful eating? Absolutely not. Not to mention that it's not the safest option either. Here's a couple quick tips for you to start incorporating mindful eating into your daily routine. Now, the first thing that you should do is when you sit down to a meal, you really want to see if you're actually hungry or if you're just eating out of boredom. Take a minute, look at your food, smell it, make sure you're salivating before you take the first bite. Eating with someone else can also help you slow down. Eating has always been a social event for humans, and taking the time to talk to someone will help you extend your meal time. Also, you wanna limit mindless distractions like TV or scrolling on your phone through Instagram. Enjoy your food. If you have decided to eat, then you must enjoy it. And this includes junk food and sweets. Yeah, I said it. If you've decided to eat pizza, then you need to enjoy it. One of the worst things that we can do for our health is to make ourselves feel guilty or bad about eating something, something that's not paleo or vegan or whatever diet you follow. Your thoughts and beliefs about your food have a huge influence on how your body is going to respond to that food. 
If you've convinced yourself that you're intolerant to gluten or nightshades or whatever it is, and you become so hyper aware of it that you worry each time you go out to a restaurant, then your body will start to fear food. We need to switch our thoughts to be excited and grateful for our food. So the food that we eat nourishes us. In my practice, I have seen this one change in how we view our food have some of the biggest impacts on people's digestive issues. Let me give you a quick example. I might put somebody on a low FODMAP diet to treat SIBO, which we'll talk about soon, and they come back three weeks later and they're telling me that they think that they had cross-contamination with garlic, one meal the entire month, and now they're worried that they ruined their entire treatment plan. This obsessive thinking about food leads to the exact thing we're trying to move away from. It leads to disordered eating in the form of orthorexia. Now, orthorexia is an eating disorder that's caused by the obsession of eating only healthy food. Yes, you can be too healthy, and I see it all the time. If you're constantly concerned about where you will eat when you're out or you're traveling or you're out of the house, or if you avoid eating altogether or avoid social situations because you're scared you won't be able to find anything to eat that's healthy, then these healthy eating practices are no longer healthy. They're actually unhealthy. These negative thoughts about food can delay and even reverse the healing process and will definitely worsen digestive issues. The first step in healing your gut is to start to view food as your friend and as the nourishing, energy-providing source that it is. If your doctor has put you on a restrictive eating program, then it should have an end in sight. No one should be so limited by what they eat for years at a time. It will actually inhibit the healing process. I hope you enjoyed day two. We covered one of the most important topics in gut health, the gut-brain axis. And as a reminder, we still have only covered a part of the gut-brain connection since a big piece is the microbiome, which we'll cover soon. After today, you should have an appreciation for how important your gut health is for your brain health and also how important your brain health is for your gut. And now you have some actionable tools to start improving your digestion through mindful eating practices. Merely just shifting your thoughts to view your food as your friend can make a huge difference. Okay, in section two of this masterclass, we learned how important the cephalic phase of digestion is. That's when you think about, look at, and smell your food. All of that triggers not only salivation, but the production of stomach acid, pancreatic enzymes, and stimulates the vagus nerve. So we're really doing ourselves a disservice when we don't chew our food enough. I mean, think about how often we barely glance at our food. Instead, we stare at a screen and don't register the way the food smells or looks, or even if we're hungry. Then we quickly chew for a few bites and swallow before breaking down the food that much at all. We barely even taste it, missing out on the pleasant experience of serotonin being released in our brain when we do chew. We learned that eating mindfully with others can help us slow down mealtimes and that doing other things while eating is correlated with weight gain. When we practice mindful eating, we're less likely to overeat and more likely to notice our body's natural cues that tell us when we're full. If you want access to Dr. Mary's full 
10-day gut health course, head over to onecommune.com slash trial. Start your 14 days of free commune membership and join her program. In that course, not only does she talk about how your hormones, nervous system, gut microbiome, and nutrition affect your gut health, she also dives into specific gut conditions like irritable and inflammatory bowel syndromes, reflux, SIPO, and leaky gut. Plus, you'll learn specific steps to optimize your second brain, otherwise known as your intestinal microbiome. Dr. Mary is truly an expert in these topics, and we often receive testimonials from students whose lives have been changed by her course. Now, this next section is an excerpt from Kimberly Snyder's commune course, Beauty Inside Out. She'll be discussing the optimal order for a meal and introducing us to the concept of eating light to heavy. This approach prevents sluggishness and improves nutrient absorption. Kimberly is a renowned nutritionist and best-selling author of more than five books, including Recipes for Your Perfectly Imperfect Life and Radical Beauty, which she co-authored with Deepak Chopra. Here's Kimberly Snyder. It's not just what we eat that matters, but the order in which we eat our food. The concept of light to heavy is designed to enhance digestion, to get the most out of your food, and to help you free up energy. We want to optimally assimilate nutrients in our food and then efficiently release wastes. This helps to reduce gassiness, bloating, and wasted energy, all things that contribute to energy leaks, aging, and diminish our beauty. So here are some general notes on eating light to heavy, which applies throughout the day and also within each meal itself. Let's start with breakfast. We've often been told that breakfast is the most important meal of the day and that we need to load up right away. But unfortunately, eating overly heavily in the morning is a recipe for a lot of our energy going straight to digestion in the morning and away from our minds, our creativity, and other parts and processes within our bodies, including rebuilding our skin and supporting our other organs. So our first principle is this. We will never eat when we are not truly hungry. So if our body is not telling us that we are hungry, it is also telling us that we certainly don't need any food. What we do in the morning is critical for achieving our goals, hence our all-important morning ritual, which we outlined in day two. When you wake up in the morning, you have a fresh start. We haven't yet put any new food in our bodies since the evening before, so your body will start to go to work eliminating and cleaning out what is already in your system. For many of us, this is the only time in the day when our body's energy is not consumed in digesting something, but can instead be directed into actually cleansing. So in the morning, you may wake up with some pungent body odors, bad breath, a coated tongue, sleep in your eyes, and so on, which are all ways your body is trying to actually eliminate toxins and waste. We cannot get energy from food until nutrients from that food have been absorbed in the small intestine. 
with typical heavier breakfast foods like egg white omelets, processed protein bars, and pancakes, at least a few hours must pass before we even get energy out of all of them. During those first few hours, they are still being digested in our stomach. So instead of gaining energy, you will be using energy to break them down and digest them. So the best thing to do in the morning is to keep it nutrient dense and also light with the glowing green smoothie. And then at least half an hour after you've had your smoothie, if you're still hungry, you can eat some avocado toast, oatmeal, or coconut yogurt as some other good, easily digestible options, which will not weigh you down in the morning. Next, let's talk about lunch, which is right in the middle of the day. We know that we need nutrients, but we also don't want to eat so heavily at lunch and miscombine our foods so that we get exhausted. There is a reason that there are two to three hour siestas in Europe where everybody goes home and takes a nap. Ayurveda has traditionally taught us to eat our biggest meal in the middle of the day when the sun is at its peak and digestive fire is believed to be very strong. However, in modern life, we don't get super long lunches to chew really well and relax. And usually we have to keep working after lunch. So I have found in my experience that if we eat overly heavy at lunch, we may need more caffeine and cravings for sugar and other stimulants may creep in to help us keep up our energy, which can get very sluggish with all the directed energy into our digestive tracts over other functions upon eating a very heavy, um, very big lunch. So in contrast, I recommend eating a very veggie forward lunch full of fiber and other nutrients. Some examples are a big salad and some kind of stew or soup, cooked veggies and lentils, an avocado and sprout wrap, veggie sushi rolls, and so on. I do recommend trying to cut animal protein out of your lunch, at least for some meals, as you start to build more plant-based from the morning up. For more beauty nutrients and keeping your body more clean, detoxed, and beautiful. And if you do eat animal protein, doing so at dinner will give you more time to relax and chew better and enjoy your meal with family, friends, or simply by yourself. Be sure to take your digestive enzymes before and remember that you simply don't need to eat animal protein more than once a day. You'll feel lighter and create a much lighter digestive load on your body, which is a wonderful way to support your natural true beauty. Now, let's talk about dinner. So let's say we kept ourselves light and the path clear for proper digestion all the way up until the evening. Amazing. Now we can enjoy a nice dinner with some heavier foods, depending on what your body needs and is calling for. Generally, we want to eat dinner at least three hours or so before bed to make sure you fully digest before sleep. Try eating veggies cooked and raw, as in salad, with a heavier protein or starch item. Now let's talk about food combining. Proper food combining or beauty food pairing, as I've also referred to it in my prior books, is about combining the foods that you eat in a strategic way so that you use less energy when you digest those foods. 
This in turn leads you to having greater energy overall, healthier, more glowing skin, an easier time losing weight and slimming down, and more mental clarity. It is yet another tool to support your beauty. Digestion is a very energy intensive process. And if we strategically make it easier on our bodies with the combinations of foods that we put together, we can free up large amounts of our own vital energy. Our bodies are hot 98 degrees and have various biochemical reactions taking place, all of which must be accounted for. Because our bodies are such a hot temperature, the longer a food stays in our bodies, the more of a chance for improper digestion, toxin buildup, bloating, and gassiness. When I personally started practicing food combining a lot of the time, I'm certainly not perfect like all of us, I noticed that my energy went up, my skin got better, and my bloating went way down. For the purposes of our course, we will hit some top line food combining information to support you in your beauty and vitality. If you're super interested in this topic, for all the detailed information on food combining that you could ever want, please check out my first book, which is called The Beauty Detox Solution. For now, let's discuss just a few basic food combining principles. The first and foremost rule of all is to simplify your meals. The more simple your meal is, the better you will digest it. Every single food requires different substrates and enzymes from your very complex GI tract to break it down. And this is a significant amount of work on your body. So it's better to eat fewer items and eat more of them than eat 30 different items at once. For instance, this translates to loading up on greens and veggies at the salad bar and getting one heavier item like lentils or bean stew versus a tiny amount of four to five heavier items. Secondly, drink significant quantities of water in between meals. It's key for beauty, energy, and health to stay hydrated. You want to start your day off hydrated with room temperature water and again, hot water with lemon and drinking the glowing green smoothie. Beyond that, be sure to keep water on your desk or in your car so you regularly sip water to stay hydrated in between meals and at least a half hour between your meals or about an hour following meals. During meal times, drink as little as possible. Too much liquid with meals actually dilutes your digestive juices and enzymes and delays and slows down digestion. It creates what is like a sludgy pond in your system where the food is mixed in with the liquids. You can sip water if you need to during meals, especially if you're eating a spicy meal, but it's better to go into your meal hydrated and again, Drink only significant amounts of water in between meals instead for optimal digestion. Our third food combining principle is to eat fruit only on an empty stomach. The exception to this is to is eating fruit with greens, such as in the glowing green smoothie. Why is this? It's because fruit is basically composed of simple sugars, micronutrients, water, and fiber. It digests very quickly out of your stomach. So if you eat fruit after eating heavier foods like protein, it can get stuck in your stomach 
And this can create a backup that will result in fermentation, putrefaction, bloat, gas, and possibly weight gain. It also robs us of our beauty energy because the harder it is for our body to digest foods and the more energy we spend on digestion, the less energy we have overall. So to sum up, practicing these basic principles of light to heavy and proper food combining are very powerful tools to free up the incredible intelligence of your body's energy from digestion and therefore be able to direct it towards all of the other functions in your body and boost your beauty. So now I'm gonna give you a visual to demonstrate the power of proper food combining. So let's say that there is a highway and these boxes represent different cars on the road. So let's say the traffic is flowing this way and the small box represents a sports car like a Ferrari. The medium box is like a SUV car, Land Rover sort of vehicle. And this big box here is an 18 wheel truck. So imagine we have the road with the same cars, but positioned in a different order. Now, again, if the road is flowing this way, and this is choice one, and this is choice two, which order would you put the cars in and why? You think that to yourself. And I'll give you the answer right now, which is, if you look at it from a logical standpoint, you would probably choose option one. And that's because the Ferrari is in the front and everything is moving along the road at a, at a very good pace. In this situation, if we put the 18 wheeler in front, what happens is the Ferrari is stuck in the back. And that means a traffic jam. It means that the Ferrari's in the back, probably spinning its wheels, it can't get fast, and the whole road starts to get congested. So if you think about this from a digestion standpoint, instead of cars, if we were to call this very fast moving vehicle fruit, which we, as we have covered in this course, is basically micronutrients, a lot of water and simple sugars, it's digested very, very quickly out of your stomach. So let's say that the big 18-wheeler is um, some dense protein. So let's say it could be some nuts or some fish, something like that. So you can see in this analogy with the road, you could actually eat the same foods, but it will digest completely differently in your body, which is supportive of the theory of food combining and also light to heavy, which we cover in this section. You eat the fruit first, it goes in, it's digested, and it gets into your duodenum, the, small, the top of your small intestine, where you start to absorb the nutrients. Then you start to digest the heavier food, which takes more hours in your stomach, and it goes along at its own pace. In contrast, were you to eat the protein first, and then you think, oh, I'm going to be healthy, I'm not going to eat the chocolate cake, but I'm going to eat the blueberries for dessert you've actually created a digestive disaster, so to speak, where the fruit cannot get through, it cannot get past. So it'll start to ferment prematurely in your stomach, which means bloating, gassiness, and perhaps worst of all, because our body is so hot, this hot mammalian body temperature, a lot of the nutrients will have been wasted by the time it even gets to your small intestine. So this is a simple demonstration to show that it's not just what we eat, but the order and the combination 
All right, so being mindful of the order and timing in which we're eating our food can really support digestion by ensuring that lighter, faster moving foods are consumed earlier in the day and before heavier foods. Our goal is to support what our body does naturally to achieve optimal health. So I hope that by having an understanding of the principle of light to heavy and food combining helps you meet that goal. If you enjoyed learning from Kimberly Snyder and want more from her, well, you can take her course, Beauty Inside Out, with a free 14-day commune membership at onecommune.com trial. Kim's 10-day course covers what she calls the four cornerstones of beauty, food, body, mental well-being, and spiritual connection. If you're tired of feeling not enough or struggle with who you see in the mirror, well, this course is an invitation to try something new and different. So head over to onecommune.com trial to get started with her full course. And next up, we're going to get the Ayurvedic perspective with Dr. Siva Mohan. With a traditional medical degree, alongside a background in behavior change and education, Siva presents a unique, empowering East-West mind-body version of Ayurveda. In her commune course, Living Well with Ayurveda, Dr. Siva emphasizes the relationship that you have with your body's innate wisdom. In this lesson from that program, you'll learn how to let your body guide you into what you should be eating, how you should be eating, and as a result, how you can improve your experience of nutrition and digestion. Siva will also give you a quick overview of how digestion works in connection with the three doshas. Now, for those of you who are completely new to Ayurveda, the doshas are the three primary energetic categorizations in Ayurveda, vata, pitta, and kapha. In Ayurveda, we're just one big ball of energy in a swirling container of our lives, which is also just energy. Kapha is generating creative energy. Pitta is the operating functioning energy, and vata is the degenerating entropic energy. And when we have too much kapha, for example, we'll see signs of kapha imbalance, which are all some form of accumulation, stagnation, or blockage. Too much pitta, and we'll show signs of inflammation or infection. Too much vata, and we'll experience that as signs of depletion, degenerative changes, or irregular function. We are all a combination of all three doshas, and the balance of that combination is constantly in flux, though most people tend to have a dominant dosha. People who are dominant in vata, for example, might have more anxiety, tend to be thin, and have an irregular appetite. Pitta people are commonly described as strong-willed, easy to gain weight, and easy to lose weight, and have a more intense appetite. Kapha tends to be more calm, easy to gain weight, and hard to lose it, and have a steady appetite. Now, there's so much more to the doshas, and if you want to dive in, Siva covers the doshas in great depth in her 10-day commune course. For now, our focus in this chapter is specifically on the Ayurvedic approach to digestion, eating, and appetite patterns. So without further delay, I give you Dr. Siva Mohan.
If you have more vata patterns happening, then you're going to see a variable sort of appetite, like, oh, I'm kind of hungry. Oh, wait, all of a sudden I'm really hungry. And then I'm full super quickly. And then I'm not really hungry. And all over the place, just here, there, and everywhere. It's variable, right? With pitta, it's definitely the people who have pitta patterns that get hangry. Like they need to refuel pretty regularly and they're hungry often. So they can eat a pretty good amount and their appetite's going to return within a few hours. And the kapha side of things, there is really not that much true physical hunger. It really takes several hours for it to kick in. So they're not really hungry in the morning. They can easily just sort of have one solid meal later in the day and feel just fine. And for the folks with a lot of kapha patterns around, it's the cravings at night where they probably do their most eating. So when we're considering our appetite, it's not because we need to have any particular appetite. Whatever appetite patterns we have are fine. It's more important that we just know where we're at and what the signals are so that we can respond to them accordingly. So yes, it's ideal if we have more of a regular appetite every few hours because that shows us that our body's digested what it just ate pretty cleanly and pretty completely. And now it's giving us a signal that it's ready to refuel again, right? What's most important is to wait for that signal to refuel. So it's super simple, not as simple in practice, but only eat when you're really hungry and stop when you're full. That's really the core message when we're paying attention to appetite. All right, so what are we going to do now that we know what the predominating patterns are? What can we change? Well, when it comes to digestion, there's three major approaches that we take in Ayurveda. The first is modifying what you eat. Now, the reason we do this is because we're really just playing with what qualities are we bringing into the system. The second way, which I think is probably the most underutilized, and we'll talk about more at the end of this lesson, is how you eat. Right, so this is going to affect qualities a little bit too, but also portion and frequency and rhythm. So if you did find that you had a lot of vata symptoms or patterns going on, what we would like you to aim for eating are the opposite qualities to vata so that we can bring some balance, right? So what we're going to want to aim for in the qualities of what you're eating is warm, moist, cooked, spiced. Warm, moist, cooked, spiced. Warm, moist, cooked, spiced. Just keep remembering warm, moist, cooked, spiced because let me tell you, people that have vata symptoms and patterns always have vata symptoms and patterns. The reason why is because vata is so inconsistent. So we tend to be a lot less consistent with our food choices and all of our choices and we find ourselves in imbalance again. So if you have those vata patterns, warm, moist, cooked, spiced, warm, moist, cooked, spiced. When it comes to how you eat, 
with a vata pattern, we really can't handle much more than a small amount because naturally digestive capacity tends to be variable or low at times, right? However, you burn through it super fast and you do need to eat more frequently. So these are the people who maybe need a little something every hour and a half or so. And oftentimes we will find ourselves being snacky or grazy when we have this pattern. In general, Vata tends to be super dry and run extremes. So more even fueling with fats and complex carbs is key, not only for the oleation and the hydration that we need with the fats, but also for not having the crashes and sort of the highs and lows that come with the simple sugars. With pitta, it's a little easier to know what to avoid, right? So spicy hot, not spices that are cooling. They have heat in them, right? So you can taste it. Like if I chew on a little bit of fresh cinnamon bark, I'm going to feel the heat in it. If I take a bite of a piece of ginger root, I'm going to feel there's heat in it. Right away, I'll feel that in my mouth. So all of those spicy hot spices, we can feel immediately the heat in there. Acidity is also something we can generally taste pretty easily, right? So that's going to be something like a um, little tangy, a little burny. Think about like when you have vinegar. That's how it feels to have acidity in your mouth, right? Fried foods, those are easy to identify. Nightshades are another category of foods. This is now not foods that have heat in them, but we're switching over to foods that cause a heating response in your body. And so those are foods that are nightshades and are foods that are inflammatory. Nightshades are the tomatoes, potatoes, eggplants, and peppers, including bell peppers. And this entire sort of family of um, vine and, and root vegetables, the reason why is because they're very readily converted as soon as we eat them into... Um, part of what is the inflammatory cascade in our body. And so it sort of just jumps in and runs the program a little bit. That may not affect us very much, but if we have excess pitta going on and we're already prone to a lot of signs and symptoms of excess pitta, we may really feel it when we bump up our heating response after eating nightshades. Inflammatory foods, you know, the common ones are the soy, the gluten, the dairy, the egg, the peanuts, the shellfish, things like that. I'm not saying that you can't eat any of these if you have a pitta symptom or pattern. It's just that each of us have varying food sensitivities and you know exactly what triggers your system to have an inflammatory response. You've seen it before. So those foods are good to avoid for you when you're showing signs and symptoms of pitta imbalance. With how you eat with pitta imbalance, you need a pretty solid portion. And I'll go over portion size a little bit later, but you know, you need a full plate, so to speak. And that's really what allows you to feel like, oh, satisfied. <laughs> and then you're going to need to plan to fuel every few hours. So pitta people, the ones that tend towards pitta imbalance is what I'm referring to. They're the ones that really need to have snacks in the car, in the purse, <laughs> because they're going to feel it as soon as they start to get hungry. 
Another really good move is to make sure that you have a lot of protein in your diet and definitely protein with every meal if possible when you're dealing with high pitta because it just helps to um, actually feed the fire what it needs so that that excess sort of fire or heat in the body isn't then um, being felt by the tissues as much. I don't know if that made sense, but just take my word on it. You're going to want more protein if you have a lot of pitta going on. So generally speaking, most of the people taking this course and haven't gotten this far in the entire series, you probably have a lot of pitta going on because it tends to be people that have a lot of pitta energy and patterns that are excited to digest new information and that are really excited to learn to apply it, right? So that last slide is probably going to be the most salient one for the majority of us. Let's take a look at some kapha patterns and responses. So when we have a little bit too much kapha energy going on in the digestive system, we tend to have a lower appetite, right? So eating warmer foods helps to kind of stoke the appetite and also makes food a little bit easier to digest when you don't have such a strong appetite. So here we want to not only have sort of more warm foods and temperature, but also we can lean into those warming, hot, pungent spices as well. Green foods are interesting because yes, while they are a little bit cooling, the other side of greens is that they flush out accumulations, right? So they kind of keep everything moving really well. And with kapha, we're wanting to counter stagnation. Another good move here is to lean in towards lighter quality foods. So think of something like mashed potatoes or a really thick oatmeal, right? There's a heavy density there to that food. And that's kind of the opposite of what we want to aim for with kapha. We want to aim for foods that feel a little bit lighter in your tummy after you eat them. So when it comes to how we're eating, Additionally, we want to have less quantity, especially in the morning when there really isn't too much appetite, and especially late night when those snacky cravings are happening, but there isn't a very high digestive capacity. In general, because kapha tends towards stagnation and accumulation, having more fibrous veggies in the diet is a really good move. Look, I'm not saying that only people with a kapha pattern should eat fibrous veggies. We should all eat fibrous veggies and we should all have greens, even those that have a vata imbalance pattern. It's just about what we want to make sure is in place or what would be the counterbalance and being aware of that so that we can naturally organically lean into those approaches that are going to be more balancing for the patterns that we have in our current state. I'd love to go a little bit more into how we are eating, right? Because there's so much room and opportunity here to improve our digestion without even touching what we're eating. Right, So let's talk a little bit about personal portion size, the energetics that surround our sort of eating environment, the rhythm of the day, and a little bit about how to prepare the body to receive food. So imagine that you're eating 
in an, a New York City sort of sidewalk cafe. It's super chic and everyone's looking so beautiful and it's hustling and it's bustling and you're in a space like this big <laughs> with all kinds of movement around you. The noise is happening on the street. You've got the cars going by. There's all these big skyscrapers. There's just a lot of movement and stimulation, right? What I just described was essentially a ton of vata energy. So no matter what I'm eating at this sidewalk cafe, I am taking in also the energetics of the experience. Remember, it's all coming in. So not only do we take in the physical energetics, but we're also taking all of the other energetics. And so in addition to the energetic qualities of what I'm eating, I'm taking in a lot of vata with that experience. And that's going to show itself in my digestive patterns and sometimes almost immediately. So something to consider when you think about how you position your meals. You know, a lot of people are eating while they're doing something else. And it kind of challenges the digestive system because it's our parasympathetic nervous system that actually is the rest and digest system, right? And so when we're still in get it done mode, right? Like if I'm sitting there in front of the computer and just you know, taking bites of things or driving while, you know, shoving a burrito in my face, something like that is definitely not a situation where the parasympathetic nervous system is on and supporting digestion. In fact, I've got my get it done mode on and I'm actively blocking digestion, right? So I'm eating because I'm hungry, but I'm not really digesting well. And then on top of it, I'm taking in the energetics of whatever it is I'm doing. So it could be the whole office environment, or it could be that busy, you know, freeway or whatever it is that's in the setting. So on that note of um, the parasympathetic nervous system, preparing our body to receive food is a lovely thing to do. A lot of cultures have a grace or sort of a, a gratitude offering or in uh, Vedic culture, there's a mantra that you can say to honor the you know, um, digestive capacity. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. It's just the idea that you are acknowledging this is a time to eat and to nourish, right? And not for other things. Now, a super simple way to do that is just to take three deep breaths with your eyes closed. That's usually enough to turn off your get it done mode and kickstart the parasympathetic nervous system and let your body know, hey, it's time to eat. One of the things Siva pointed out is that when we eat, we are ingesting the energetics of our environment and that doing other things while we eat is more detrimental to our overall health than you might think. It really impacts our ability to absorb nutrients efficiently. So we learn to be more sensitive to what's happening inside our bodies as well as outside on both a physical and energetic level. Taking a moment before we eat to give thanks and calm ourselves isn't just a religious formality. It can activate the parasympathetic nervous system, which in turn supports optimal digestive function. 
Ayurveda isn't easily simplified. It's a 5,000-year-old healing system, a path to spiritual growth, and a daily lifestyle. If you want to dip your toe in those deep waters, well, check out Siva's 10-day course on Commune titled Living Well with Ayurveda, where she teaches you how to understand what your body is telling you, identify patterns of imbalance, and know how to best nourish yourself. You can access that course with a free 14-day commune membership at onecommune.com trial. Okay, coming up in the next lesson, we'll hear from Dr. Pedram Shojai, who studied as a Taoist monk and is now a doctor of oriental medicine and qigong master. He'll be giving us tools to disrupt the complacent and automatic way we treat mealtime. This is a reminder to eat with all our senses, savor what's on our plate, and make mealtime sacred and fulfilling. Here's Pedram. What are you doing it? How are you doing it? How are you going about this thing called eating? And how can you bring conscious awareness to it? When I was a monk, it was absolutely critical to go to this very quiet place and have this gratitude attitude around food that would allow you to just sit there and be reverent towards your food. Uh, and man, you know, it was difficult at first. And now I understand how important it is because, look, you've been eating since day one right? Even when you're suckling on milk, it became a habit. And so habits, these things that you do, those are the places that you don't even look anymore because like, whatever, I'm just eating. No, that's where you're losing your consciousness, your awareness, and you're losing your connection with time because you're losing your connection with now, right? What's happening now? Let's talk about food, right? First of all, I mean, there's volumes of work being done on supply chain, quality of food, organics, and all that. That's not what we're talking about here. Obviously, eat clean, eat right, eat at least 50% vegetables per meal. That's all Dr. Pedram will talk about. Let's talk about the way you're eating your food here, right? What are you ordering and why? What are you feeding? You want to be feeding the healthy microbes in your gut first and foremost with fiber, lots of vegetables, phytonutrients, things that go in, get broken down, and turn into butyrate, short-chain fatty acids, and energy for the microbes that then help support your health, right? So the microbiome needs to eat so that you can eat. Now, that said, we have the supply chain issues with nasty food. Eat as clean as you can. I know a lot of you don't have access to that. Just go with more vegetables and try to stay away from hormone-fed uh, unnaturally raised uh, animal products. That stuff is toxic. It will hurt you, okay? Now, what does your food smell like? What's the temperature? How's the texture? Let's look at the colors, right? When have you stopped to apply your five senses to this thing called lunch that's arrived in front of you, right? What is it? These vegetables? Someone grew these vegetables and cut them for you. Thank you for giving your life so that I can continue mine. Is it an animal? Wow, that's heavy, right? Something gave its life so that you can continue yours, right? So thank you. Reverence, right? These moments to stop and reflect and 
be present with what's happening here. There's all this life on this sacrificial altar that you are onboarding into your digestive system for your microbiome and for your cells to, to ingest and turn into energy so that you can live this thing called life. Why do you deserve it, right? What are you going to do with this energy? So it's, it's actually this, this really sacred moment that we've just completely short-circuited and we're just scarfing it down while talking about something that happened at the office. And we've become completely separated from the profound reality that is life. I'm this organism that somehow ingests other organisms to stay alive and, and stumble around in my thing called life, hopefully making the world a better place, but maybe not. Right. And so this place, it's really uncomfortable. Right. So I want you to just stop and not to like get down on yourself about like who you are in life, but think about who you are in life, where your life is going, what's in your life garden. What is this thing, this sacrificial altar on this plate that's put in front of you? What is this going to feed in your life garden? And how are you going to take this energy? How are you going to deserve, deserve to take this energy? and take it into all of these areas of your life to make the, the world you live in better for your family, your friends, your community, all of it, right? And so the, the layers of consciousness that have been kind of ejected from this process called eating is where your homecoming is going to be today. And it starts with the five senses, right? And this is your homework. I'm weaving your homework into this right here, right? Is as the food arrives, let's go through your five senses, right? Let's start with your environment. Listen, right? So your food's probably not making noise. Maybe it is, right? Uh, maybe it's sizzling. But what does the room sound like? Let's just get some ambiance in the room. Let's get a tone of the, the environment that you're in. And then what does it smell like? What does it taste like? What's the temperature? What's the texture? Let's go through your five senses and really adjust for what's happening here in front of you. And then slowly and methodically, let's go back to something that's been lost to our species in, in the modern world, which is chewing and appreciating. So let's slowly chew this food and taste it. Let's feel the texture as it's in our mouth. Let's get the aroma as we're ingesting this thing. And you know what? Today, you could make this a habit later, but today's homework is just for today. Let's not have idle conversation and let's just enjoy the food, right? And if you're at some lunch that you got to be at with people, um, there's a game you could play, which is bringing them back, right? And I'll do this all the time is, you know, people sit down and the food shows up and people just start going without anything. And I'm like, wow, look at those tomatoes. They look so beautiful, huh? You know, wow, you guys, this is really delicious. And just keep cueing and calling people back to this thing that's happening. And it changes the tone of the conversation. It brings everyone back. So if you're not in an environment where you can just go quiet and go completely zen, at least play this game. And then the next meal you have a chance, try this, right? Try this and really work on it. And so your job today is to take this thing that we do all the time, mindlessly, and bring it back under the fold, under the realm of your conscious awareness. Breathe, chew, savor, look, listen, and just bring it all back 
and bring this time into this kind of sacred, reverent place where this meal is now something that's nurturing and fulfilling and serving you. And you'll spend probably the same amount of time eating lunch, but the way you feel afterwards is going to be phenomenal. It's going to be different. And your quality of time and your appreciation of time that day will shift as you go to this place of, of zero time of no time. And then when you go back into the white water, you have this kind of this tranquility and this peace that you've established as kind of an anchor point in your day that you come back to so that you don't go crazy and you don't go into this place where you wake up and say, oh God, I don't, I don't know what happened, but today ended. Okay, so in part five of this masterclass, we learned how to show reverence for our food, to really break it down into small moments and to savor each of those moments, cultivating a sense of gratitude, curiosity, and appreciation for all aspects of our food and the process of eating. And we learned to use meal times as opportunities to contemplate our place and purpose in the cycle of life. Essentially, we owe our lives to the food that we eat. It's keeping us alive. Without it, we would simply not survive. And depending on what and how we eat, we can aim to do more than just survive. We can begin to thrive. Now, if you're drawn to what Dr. Pedram Shojai was teaching, you can take his 10-day commune course, The Art of Stopping Time, in which he offers you mindfulness techniques to reshape your relationship with time and your to-do list. Learn how to do a time audit. Discover where you are leaking time and then reinvest that extra time to enjoy what matters to you most. If you struggle with the feeling like you don't have enough time, then I encourage you to just take a few minutes to go to onecommune.com slash trial and sign up for commune membership and just watch the first lesson of Dr. Pedram Shojai's course. Now, in the next lesson, we'll get into some very practical tools you can use to incorporate mindful eating into your daily life because we want this to become a habit. Jason Robel brings more than 20 years of experience in holistic plant-based nutrition and is the best-selling author of the cookbook and lifestyle guide, Eternity. As the first plant-based chef with a primetime television series, his groundbreaking show, How to Live to 100, taught millions of people how to prepare delicious, organic, healthy meals at home. Jason will help bring awareness to why you eat the foods you do and take you through his personal food journal. So without further delay, I give you Jason Robel on Mindful Practices for Mealtime. Today, I'm gonna to be sharing with you processes for perceiving how food makes you feel and sharing with you some mindfulness techniques that you can use before and after your meals. We're gonna talk about food journaling and why it's important. And I'm gonna talk about an old school practice made new again for you to get more present with the food that you're eating. First, I just wanna talk about how a lot of people think 
that they're eating super healthy, myself included. But when you start to take a really good look and take inventory of what you're actually eating every single day, you might start to find that the reality is a little closer to maybe you're not eating as optimally as you could. And there's really not as much diversity in what you're eating. Most people are just creatures of habit, eating the same handful of the same foods over and over and over again. But diversity is really important when it comes to your nutrition. Now, I advocate something called eating the rainbow. I'm not talking about Skittles. I'm talking about having as many colors of food in each meal as possible so you can get a maximum number of vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients. I think it's really important in general to bring awareness not only to what you're eating, but also why you're eating the foods you do. And this is a practice that I've been doing for a while of just asking myself specific questions such as, well, am I really eating for nourishment and fuel right now? Or maybe am I eating more for emotional comfort? Or what do I start to eat when I feel stressed, depressed, or sad? What kind of foods do I reach for in those moments? Conversely, when you're feeling happy and empowered and joyful, what do you find yourself eating in those moments? I think it's important to keep a food journal and write down a list so we can create awareness around any sort of emotional triggers or habitual patterns with food. So when I started keeping track of my emotional patterns with food, I discovered that I was a sugar fiend. At every time I started to feel lonely or heartbroken or I was going through a breakup in a relationship, I would always reach for something sugary and sweet and filling and it's just become this food addiction that I've spent years unraveling and trying to understand better. And it started with the awareness of what was motivating my food choices when I was in those emotional states. So I think it's really important to pay attention to your body and how you feel 30 to 60 minutes after you finish each meal. Now, I'm a big fan of using a food journal to keep track, again, of not only what you're eating, but why you're eating and the emotional states after you eat the food. So I want to show you my personal food journal. So here it is. And I also want to show you how I use it to keep track of my food intake. And again, more importantly, how I'm feeling about my food choices. So for example, uh, here is uh, an example from something I ate this week where I've got breakfast and I've got lunch and a snack. So right here, uh, my breakfast is a, a superfood smoothie that I made. And how I do it is I list not only what I ate, I list the ingredients in that particular dish. And then uh, there are actually some online calculators that can help you get a general range of calories and protein and other macronutrients if you want. So again, walking through really quickly, superfood smoothie with almond milk, uh, blueberries, cherries, peaches, chlorella, barley grass, papaya, sea salt, and avocado. Really short list of ingredients. And when you plug these into an online calculator, there's a lot of them out there and apps that will do this for you, uh, where you can plug in what you ate and it'll spit out, okay, general calorie range, 550 calories, uh, estimated protein, 20 grams. But even a layer deeper, uh, I have a category here called feels, 
what I'm feeling uh, before and during and after a meal. So here I have, uh, I feel bloated when I drink almond milk. Uh, I think I'll try hemp milk instead and see how I feel. Uh, I'm also noticing that I'm not present at breakfast. Really interesting. Uh, I'm on my phone too much and I don't even remember the taste of the smoothie. So I've started noticing at breakfast in particular, I don't know why, uh, but I just like want to scroll through my phone and check my Instagram and check ESPN and, and all kinds of things. So I've noticed that consistently in my food journal that I'm just not present at breakfast. So I'm feeling like uh, maybe almond milk's not the best choice because I feel bloated. But really the thing I want to pay attention to is why I feel the need to check out on my phone and check my Instagram and check my email and check the sports scores during breakfast. Like, why is that? That's something that I'm bringing a level of presence to because I've noticed it's popped up in my journal a few times. Uh, okay, so now moving on to lunch. I just want to walk you through just so you understand my process here. So here uh, for lunch, I had a falafel plate from Dune. That's a, a local Middle Eastern restaurant. And right here, uh, ingredients. So it had fried falafel, hummus, greens, olives, pickled turnips, quinoa, and pita bread. So uh, again, you can plug this in online and just kind of get a general range. Estimated calories, 825 uh, estimated protein, 53 grams, like pretty high. We've got the garbanzo beans in there, the fava beans, and the quinoa. So this one, a little bit higher in calories, higher in protein. Uh, but again, if we're going down to how I felt with the meal, um, everything felt good and digested well, except for the pita bread. Uh, I think that I'm much more gluten sensitive now. I've noticed that over the years, every time I eat something that's got gluten in it, I just feel a little bit bloaty and icky and slow. Um, and whenever I eat even a small portion like I did in the pita bread, it just doesn't feel the best in my body. So I think it's a clear time for me to be like, hey, I'm going to go fully gluten-free and see how I feel with that. Um, I also ate too fast. I want to practice slowing down and savoring more. So this is another thing I've noticed uh, in the middle of the day when I do lunch. My head is swimming with my to-do list or I'm right in the middle of my work day and I'm eating lunch. So instead of savoring the meal and really tasting all the flavors, I've noticed I have a tendency at lunchtime to just speed through the meal. So that's something I wanna practice, just slowing down, tasting the food, making it a really nice sensual experience. So let's, I think there's one more entry I wanna show you here. Oh yeah, so here's a snack that I had, a chocolate bar. Uh, ingredients, cacao, sugar, cacao butter, and sea salt. Super simple, basic bar. The darker, the better. I love dark chocolate. Um, estimated calories, and this was easy because it was on the chocolate the chocolate bar itself, 189 calories and three grams of protein. Uh, feels, I was feeling lonely. Uh, this is a pattern I mentioned before when I was talking about my emotional inventory. Um, when I tend to reach for desserts or sugary things, when I start to feel lonely. Um, so I ate a few squares of the bar and didn't feel much better. So I ended up eating the whole damn bar, <laughs> which, uh, which I'm apt to do. Uh, still felt lonely and wish I had a girlfriend to cuddle with right now. <laughs> it's true. Um, so I have noticed again, just there, there's a consistent pattern for me of, um, yeah, when I, when I just feel lonely or wish I had somebody to cuddle with, chocolate is usually involved. Um, so it's something that I'm noticing 
that I have a pattern of not stopping at a few bars, I tend to kind of just go all out and eat the entire bar all at once. So again, this is just a snapshot to you guys of how I am keeping the food journal and why I'm doing it. Not only what I'm eating during the day, uh, but my macronutrients so I can keep track of my calories and protein. I don't go crazy on the macronutrients, but the most compelling thing for me and why I'm doing this is so I can get a snapshot of what I'm feeling emotionally when I'm feeling lonely or depressed or how I'm feeling before a meal or during a meal or after it. So I'm just really doing my best to be mindful of my relationship with food. If there's any negative associations or again, if I'm eating out of a sense of emotional deprivation, that's not really how I wanna handle my food intake day to day. I really wanna make sure that I'm having a positive, loving relationship and being as present as I can with whatever I'm putting in my body. In terms of taking old school information and practices and making them relevant to modern life, I now wanna share a quote with you from a man named Horace Fletcher, also known as the Great Masticator, who famously created a practice called Fletcherizing. So Horace Fletcher was around in the late 1800s and early 1900s, so he had an interesting way of speaking. So here's what he said. Eat somewhat less, but eat it more. Would you be hearty beyond fourscore? Eat not at all in worried mood, or suffer harm from the best of food. Don't gobble your food, but fletcherize. Each morsel you eat, if you'd be wise. Don't cause your blood pressure ever to rise by prizing your menu by its size. So all Victorian era rap lyrics aside, Horace Fletcher's philosophy was based on the idea that the more you chewed your food, the easier it was to digest as chewing creates more amylase in your mouth. And amylase is the primary carbohydrate digestive enzyme. Now, as the world's first chewing guru, Fletcher preached that for optimal absorption of food, it must be re reduced to tiny particles and blended evenly with your saliva. So in other words, to prevent the loss of nutrients over the course of digestion, people following this plan had to transform their mouths into primitive kitchen gadgets, uh, somewhere between a Vitamix and a sous vide machine. Also, it was a dignified practice of high society in the late 1800s and early 1900s with the likes of Mark Twain, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Franz Kafka, Thomas Edison, and John D. Rockefeller all trying their hands and mouths at Fletcherizing. So the takeaway for today, first of all, is that I want you to create your own food journal, not just to keep track of what you're eating every day to see if there's an opportunity to create more diversity in what you're eating, but more deeply into how you're feeling when you eat foods and whether or not you're actually present to what you're eating. So you can use the formula that I showed you earlier and how I'm keeping a food journal, or just get creative and create your own way of keeping it. Now, I also want you to practice being more present at every meal by feasting with your eyes first. I want you to start really taking in the food before you consume it and close your eyes even before you take a bite. Take in the smell, relax and breathe and allow your body to relax and 
really sink into this delicious experience. And when you finally do get ready to take that first bite, I want, yourself, I want you to allow yourself to be undistracted by anything else that's going on. This presence starts to unlock more gratitude and appreciation in the meal, allowing you to eat slower and actually absorb more nutrients. When you eat slower and really start to chew your food mindfully, the amylase starts to break down all the nutrients in your mouth, helping you to actually pre-digest the food, thereby making the nutrients more assimilable. And beyond the physical nutritive benefits, when you take that first bite of food and you're fully present to what's going on, you just really have this deep, sensual, connected experience to what you're eating, which does help you feel more grateful to the fact that you're nourishing yourself with this amazing food every single day. Okay, so what I find most interesting about what Jason is teaching is around emotional eating, and really taking the time to examine our emotions and how they impact the choices we make around food is transformative. As so many of us eat when we're bored, anxious, tired, sad, lonely, happy, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but when it's something we're doing mindlessly, it can really impact the quality of our lives. Now, maybe you tend to reach for salty, crunchy carbs as some sort of reward, but as you age, those empty calories really limit your ability to maintain levels of optimal health. You wanna feel as good as you possibly can feel. So becoming mindful is the first step in being able to make new choices and form healthier habits. Jason's food journal is a powerful tool in helping us transform our eating habits and put an end to mindless emotional eating. That was just a small part of Jason's 10-day commune course, Good Mood Food, which really grounds you in the science while also getting you in the kitchen with recipes to help you breakfast for success, regulate mood swings, and eat well on the go. Jason also teaches you about superfoods that he loves, how to prepare the mind and body for sleep, and how to tune into food's subtle effects on your biochemistry. I hope you'll sign up at onecommune.com slash trial for a free commune membership and then go and find Jason's program. In the next lesson, we'll be hearing from Dr. James Gordon, who is a Harvard-educated psychiatrist, former researcher at the National Institute of Mental Health, chair of the White House Commission on Complementary and Alternative Medicine Policy, and a clinical professor of psychiatry and family medicine at Georgetown Medical School. He has authored or edited 10 books, including Transforming Trauma, The Path to Hope and Healing. In 1991, he founded the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, which has become one of the world's leaders in addressing population-wide psychological trauma. Here, he'll be talking about how stress and trauma affect our digestive system just as much as they affect our brain, and everything that happens in your digestive tract in turn affects our mental and emotional functions. Please enjoy Dr. James Gordon. So let's begin. 
When we have been traumatized or are under stress, every part of our gastrointestinal tract, from the very top, from our what's called the cephalic phase of digestion, which refers to the head, what we think and how we relate to food, all the way down through the esophagus and the stomach and the small and large intestine, all the way through the process of assimilation of food and excretion of waste matter that's left over, every part is affected by stress and trauma. So briefly, if we're anxious and agitated as we are in fight or flight, our food choices tend to be a bit sketchy and we tend to eat very fast. And that eating fast in turn produces a great deal of gas and disrupts uh, the process that's going on in, in our stomach, first of all. And it may alter, uh, sometimes reduce the amount of acid in the stomach that we need for digestion. So that's head down to the stomach. In the small intestine, where the overwhelming majority of assimilation of nutrients take place, the disruption is, is very significant. In addition to the small intestine not being as efficient, because if you remember in fight or flight, digestion's kind of shut down, what also happens is that the cells that line the small intestine, which ordinarily are very close together, they're called endothelial cells because they're on the interior of the small intestine. When we're in a state of calm and relaxation and life is okay, those cells are close together. They have what's called tight junctions and food can't pass through between those cells and into the bloodstream. So the only food, the only nutrients that are going into the bloodstream, with some exceptions, are those that are well digested, that are meant to diffuse, to cross from the small intestine into the bloodstream. However, when we've been traumatized after a war, the pandemic, or after a loss, or, or when the stress is chronic, those cells that line the small intestine often separate. And so molecules of food that are not meant to go into the bloodstream go into the bloodstream. And many different kinds of molecules. The best known and perhaps the most damaging to us is gluten which is a protein and part of wheat and rye and barley and, and many other grains. Uh, ordinarily, for most of us, unless we have celiac disease specific condition, gluten doesn't diffuse across the small intestine into the bloodstream. When we've been traumatized or under stress, it's much more likely to. And it goes throughout the bloodstream. And in many instances, it causes an inflammatory response because it's not meant to be there. And so our body responds to protect us. When this happens in the brain, it may create symptoms of anxiety, of depression, and of cognitive disturbance. We may not think so clearly. Second major consequence in the small intestine is a disruption 
in the microbiome. That's a word that's become very um, current, very fashionable, and appropriately so recently. Microbiome refers to the trillions, literally trillions of bacteria, which live in our digestive system. Primarily in the small intestine, there are the good bacteria. There are the ones that help us to function. There are the ones that communicate, interestingly, through the vagus nerve with our brain. And when we're in a state of psychological and physiological balance, we have an overwhelming majority of those good bacteria in our small intestine. After trauma, under ongoing stress, that can change. And the bad bacteria, the ones that cause disease, uh, grow more um, abundant. Sometimes they migrate from the large intestine into the small intestine and then multiply there. Sometimes the ones in the small intestine multiply more. Now, why is this important? When the microbiome composition changes, then the signals that the microbiome, those trillions of bacteria, are sending to the rest of our bodies also get damaged. Those signals are not the sort of pure go-ahead, uh, here's a instruction about how to work well in the immune system, here are instructions conveyed to the brain through that vagus nerve that we talked about right at the beginning of our time together that help the brain rebuild itself when it's under stress and when it's traumatized. So the microbiome is disrupted and the signals that are going to the brain are not providing a clear message or a, a strong positive message. So we're not getting the regeneration of the brain that is possible. And then excretion too is affected. Under stress or trauma, sometimes people become constipated and that in turn causes problems, may cause problems for the microbiome, may cause problems for digestion, or we develop diarrhea, and we may be losing nutrients because of the diarrhea, and uh, we're certainly losing water, we're out of balance. So, an intrinsic and critically important part of healing ourselves when we've suffered trauma or when we're going through ongoing stress is through what we eat. Hippocrates famously said 2,500 years ago, Hippocrates, the father, the founder of our Western medicine, said, let food be your medicine and medicine your food. And of course, for the most part, medicine has forgotten about that. And too many doctors say, it doesn't matter what you eat, or don't worry about it, uh, it's going to be okay. Well, a lot of doctors don't know a great deal about nutrition. So this is one of those areas where it's really important that you learn for yourself the, the basic scientific facts. And as I said, I've just given you, a, a touched on a few of the high points in my much longer discussion of how uh, trauma and stress affect digestion. And that you then take what you've learned and use your common sense and design a diet that will maximize your gastrointestinal tract's opportunity to heal itself and to bring balance and healing to every cell in your body, including every cell in your brain. So if you think about it, 
And think about what I just described in terms of how trauma and stress affect digestion. The remedy to that becomes reasonably straightforward. So you want to start off by quieting yourself, calming yourself, decreasing that stress that's affecting the cephalic phase of digestion, the tension, the anxiety, which not only prompts poor food choices, but also um, affects every aspect of digestion. And uh, we often try to do this, try to work with the anxiety and the stress that we're feeling that the, the uh, technique that we sometimes come up with spontaneously and understandably is we eat comfort foods. What are comfort foods? Those are foods that are tend to be highly processed. They're high in sugar. They're high in fat. They're high in salt. Maybe they're the foods our mom or whoever took care of us gave us when we were, when we were little that made us feel good. And it's understandable that we go to comfort foods because that sugar in our bloodstream, that easily accessible sugar quiets the stress response. It lowers the level of cortisol, lowers the level of norepinephrine. It increases serotonin, which is a calming neurotransmitter. It increases levels of endorphins, so we don't feel so much distress and pain. It's a short-term solution, however, because long-term, long-term, those good feelings start going away. So you have to eat more and more of that comfort food. And then over time, what happens is there's a kind of rebound. So you put out more stress hormones, you put out more cortisol, more adrenaline, you decrease the levels of endorphins, you decrease serotonin. So you feel more depressed, you feel more anxious, uh, and your digestion suffers more, and you set yourself up for chronic illness because a diet of highly processed, sugary, salty, fatty foods is a precursor of so many chronic illnesses. So what you do to address this cephalic phase, to find a way to quiet yourself down, and I'm speaking to you, but I'm also talking about myself, what I do is I make sure that I'm spending time bringing my body and mind into balance with soft belly breathing on a regular basis. And I'm acknowledging this need for comfort food. But instead of eating a pint of ice cream, what I've learned to do is eat three tablespoons of ice cream, and I feel quite satisfied. You may not believe me, but you have to do the experiment yourself. It's really very, very interesting. Because what I've found over the years, and many people tell me they've also found, is that they taste uh, the first few bites of a food. Oh, it's so delicious. I've had this experience many times. And then 10 minutes later, I look down at my plate and it's all gone. Where did it go? I'm really not tasting a great deal or not even paying that much attention after those first couple of bites. So don't get down on yourself because you crave comfort foods or even because you eat them. Just eat less and you'll get 
a little bit of peace and quiet, and you won't get the overwhelming jolt of sugar and all that salt, and you won't become addicted. You'll see it and you'll experience these comfort foods as a kind of treat. So that's two ways to deal with the cephalic phase of digestion that is disrupted when we've been traumatized or under stress. One is stay in this place as much as you can of relaxed moment-to-moment awareness. The second is understand the comfort food cravings. It's, it's not a moral failing. It's a biological, um, a biological nudge. Pay attention, respond a little bit, and um, see what happens. Do the experiment. Beyond that, and we'll come back to this later, begin to think a little more clearly, a little more patiently about what you want to eat and how you want to prepare it, and then eat in a way that's more relaxed and mindful. And we'll come back to that a little bit later. I just wanted to put that in here because that's the, uh, that's the capstone or that's the uh, arms around this change in uh, our process of thinking about and selecting and preparing foods and eating foods. This is the way we can bring everything together for the cephalic phase of eating so that we're eating in a mindful and healthy way. Okay, so understanding that trauma and stress really impact our digestive system is critical as we develop our mindful eating practice. The relief that we get when we're upset and we consume comfort foods is short-lived. It's like feeding a hungry ghost with an enormous stomach and a little mouth. It does work temporarily. Eating sweet, salty, processed food can give us a momentary break from the distress we're experiencing. So if you're doing that, don't make it worse by beating yourself up over it. That isn't going to help and will lead to frustration, and you'll probably just want to give up. The goal here is to gently build our ability to respond instead of react. This is where meditation and self-directed neuroplasticity is clearly the tool we all need to be practicing. When we're trying to change a deeply ingrained habit, we're literally transmuting neural pathways in our brain. And the only way we can create new ones is by compassionately redirecting our thoughts and behaviors over and over again. This is particularly challenging when we've experienced some sort of trauma or extreme stress. So next time you notice yourself reaching for something out of desire to relieve emotional pain, see if you can pause. Attempt to calm yourself with breath work, a walk around the block, a rest outside on the grass, or whatever it is that allows you to just be with the sensations and soothe yourself. You can give the part of yourself that's in pain a name and literally talk to it out loud. Listen to what it's asking for and respond to it with care. This is teaching yourself to respond to your emotions in ways that will support your long-term health instead of reacting to emotions in habitual ways that don't serve your health goals. This is some tough work here for those of us that are carrying trauma or grief. So again, please treat yourself like someone you love 
and be as gentle as you would be with a newborn baby. If you resonate with what Dr. Gordon is teaching, he has a full 10-day commune course called Transforming Trauma that gets into many aspects of healing trauma beyond food and digestion. Whether you're dealing with the consequences of a painful childhood, a grieving loved one, facing a difficult divorce, or want ways to cope with your feelings from the pandemic, you'll learn tools and techniques that Dr. Gordon has used for over 50 years to reverse the effects of chronic stress and tension. Just go to onecommune.com trial to get started with commune membership and search for transforming trauma. Okay, we're not finished yet with Dr. Gordon. In this final lesson, Dr. Gordon is going to guide us through a mindful eating exercise. You will actually need a bite of food. I have here with me a piece of fruit, which is ideal for this short meditation. If you don't have fruit, pick any healthy whole food for this. Feel free to pause while you grab that. All right, ready? Let's eat together mindfully. I hope you all have your little morsel of fruit for this experiment. That's all you need for this. All you need is a little bit of fruit and um, bringing your whole self to this experience, <laughs> to this experience, to this experiment. I, I'm laughing because this this always tickles me to do uh, to do mindful eating, and because I'm also uh, remembering that it's something that I need to continually remind myself of, how important and how valuable mindful eating is. So what's mindful eating? Mindful eating is something very simple. It's eating in a way that is a little bit more thoughtful and creating the opportunity to do that by eating more slowly. And you can tell I'm speaking slowly now to encourage that state of mind. We're going to do it now. And what I'm going to ask you to do, and then I'll talk a little bit more about it once you've had the experience. The way we're going to do it is I'm going to ask each of you to take a morsel of food, the one I asked you to have ready for this experiment, and uh, to hold it in your hand. What I'm going to do is I'm going to peel the skin off the top of this banana that I have here in front of me, and I'm going to break a little piece off the Actually, that's even too big. I'm just going to break a little piece off the end. I'm putting the rest of my banana down, and, and here's, my, here's my little piece of banana. And this is all you need. Now, mindful eating begins with a little observation. So, um, I'm just looking at this little piece of banana, and I'm looking at the structure, the difference between the center of this little piece and the outer part of the little piece. And I'm looking at the slight difference between the texture of the inside and the outside. And I'm noticing how fibrous the banana was. I literally have never noticed that before. So I'm looking. This is part of being mindful. I'm looking at this little piece of banana. And I'm going to smell it. And I encourage you to do the same. Look and then smell. What does it smell like? 
to me, at this moment, I'm intoxicated with the smell of this little piece of banana. It's like, oh, well, maybe somebody ought to make a perfume out of essence of banana. Really, it's kind of nice. Mm. And then I'm just going to put it on my skin, just feel what it's like. Mm. This one's a little cool. I can feel the moisture on it. So we've looked at it. I hope you've done the same. Looked at it very closely. Smelt it. Maybe felt it as well as smelt it. Now put it in your mouth. Put this little piece of fruit in your mouth, just as I'm doing right now. Don't chew yet. Just let it be in your mouth. I'm closing my eyes because that way I can focus even more on this experience, this uh, experience of having a little piece of banana in my mouth and feeling the texture. Feeling it with my teeth and my tongue and the roof of my mouth and the inside of my cheeks. And beginning to experience some of the taste too. That's coming off the banana now. Let yourself do that just for a few more seconds. Just experience that. And now begin very, very slowly to chew this piece of fruit very slowly, about a fifth or a tenth of your normal rate. Experiencing the different textures as well as the different tastes. And as you're ready, very slowly, swallow. Keep chewing, swallowing. Ah, so if we were in a room together, uh, I would ask you, what was that like for you? And I am asking you now, even though we're not in a room together. So when afterwards or, or right now, while you're listening to me, jot down, jot down what you noticed, what you smelled, what it looked like, what it felt like, what it was like to chew slowly. What kinds of tastes came up in your mouth? What were the textures? What was it like to swallow so slowly and mindfully? What was the whole experience like? That concludes our Commune Masterclass on Mindful Eating. So how do you feel? 
Can you see how you can incorporate some of that experience into your next meal? I hope you're coming away from this masterclass inspired to improve your eating habits. To recap, we've examined the physical, mental, and spiritual aspects of eating, and we've learned specific tools and techniques to help us eat more mindfully. We've learned that eating mindfully can help increase our ability to recognize internal cues of hunger, taste, satiety, and fullness. We've learned that to achieve optimal digestive function, which is the cornerstone of wellness, our parasympathetic nervous system, the rest and digest mode should be activated. When we're in fight or flight, the sympathetic nervous system, we tend to overeat and don't get the full benefits of each stage of digestion. I truly believe that the more we know about how our bodies turn food into fuel and how our psychology impacts our physiology, the more likely we are to make healthy choices and develop better habits. Bringing mindfulness to all areas of our relationship to food, from what we're eating to when we're eating to how we're eating it, will result in a more vibrant and happier you. We also learned that eating together, the social aspect of preparing and eating food, is beneficial to our well-being. Our social environment has a huge influence on what and the way we eat, so we hope you'll join the Commune Membership Community where you will meet like-minded people on a similar journey towards wellness. Commune Membership offers you more than 100 guided video courses from leading teachers across yoga and meditation, food and health, spirituality, sustainability, and civic engagement with new programs added every two weeks. Our courses help people learn together, connect, and bring their best selves into the world. Thanks for partaking in this Commune Masterclass on Mindful Eating. That's all from the Commune for now. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.